0: Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to Farm Food Facts for December 11, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Lempert. Remember to watch the new short film from USFRA, 30 Harvests, to see just how farmers provide a source of healthy food while addressing environmental concern for current and future generations. Go to usfarmersandranchers.org, to view this impactful and heartfelt film later in the podcast we talk with 17 year old addie Battelle, a homeschooled high school senior from Cass city michigan she's the co-founder and board member of a nationally recognized hunger relief organization meeting the need for our village but first fred yoder a fourth generation farmer who has lived and farmed near plain city ohio for more than 40 years along with his wife debbie and his two children He grows corn, soybeans, and wheat on his farm of over 1,800 acres. Fred has served as president of the National Corn Growers Association, as chairman of the NCGA's biotech working group, which helps to develop protocols to ensure that new emerging technologies could be used safely on the farm while protecting other existing crop systems. He is the co-chair of the Board of Directors of Solutions from the Land, a nonprofit organization working with the Global Alliance of Climate Smart Agriculture, which enables developed and developing countries to ramp up global food production and distribution in a sustainable way, and serves as chair of the North American Climate Smart Agriculture Alliance. Today, we're focused on the future, and I can think of no one better to lead us on this journey than Fred. Fred, welcome to Farm Food Facts.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So I guess the hardest question to ask, looking into your crystal ball, if you would, you know, what is agriculture going to look like over the next 5, 10, and 20 years?
1: Well, certainly we're going to have to look a little different than we do now, and we're getting there. Farmers, whether they like to admit it or not, they've been adapting to climate change only. They're calling it weather pattern changes. So, you know, it's just the way you've got to find a way to talk about the weather in one way or another, because unfortunately uh we politicized this whole climate change, and I think that's absolutely ridiculous. You know farmers like to tout the sound science of biotechnology and mm-hmm. and other technologies, but uh, they're very reluctant to uh, talk about climate change since we've politicized it. But you talk about weather pattern changes, you talk about the growing seasons that we've had the last couple of years, and certainly things have changed. And so, What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to figure out ways that not only do we make ourselves less risky to bad weather, but also to make our soil more relevant to go in the future and do better. So what we're trying to do is look at farmers and and tell them that sometimes less is more. So less tillage, integrating with cover crops and things that then maybe saving some uh, soil along with our our nutrients. That's the way to go. Because farmers respond to economic incentives and, and really we have to figure out a way that that we can change our practices, but at the same time have an economic advantage. So that's that's really what I've been working on with farmers is to help them understand that new practices can make them money, but it can also be really, really big solutions to climate change.
0: You know, Fred, I agree with your earlier statement about politics and climate change, and that really getting in the way of of progress, if you would. How can we? you know, rid climate change of the whole political issue? Or can we, in fact, even do that? Because I don't think that until we separate them out, that we are going to get everybody to understand what the situation, when it comes to weather, is really creating for us.
1: Well, one of the ways that we can do it is, is there's a thing called climate-smart agriculture, and that should mean the same, where regardless of what country you're in or what state you're in in the states here. And and climate-smart agriculture is the way to get around, instead of saying climate change, climate-smart agriculture really operates on three pillars. And the first pillar is profitability and sustainable intensification. And farmers respond to profitability. That's really the -hmm. first, really, initial uh, definition of sustainability is, in other words, if you don't make money enough to pay your bills, then it's not sustainable.
0: Exactly. You're out of business. Absolutely.
1: The second pillar is all about adaptation to changing weather patterns or climate change or whatever you want to call it and ways to make your soils more resilient and risk management. And that's really what making soils more resilient its all about. The more organic matter you can provide for your soils, the less you will be hurt by long periods of dry weather or even periods of wet weather. Because as we have... Considered that soil scientists tell us that 25,000 gallons of extra capacity for your soils is available for just 1% of additional organic matter. So that means in wet weather, it'll hold 25,000 gallons more before the water, you know, goes off the surface. But that also means in dry weather that you have a reserve there that gets you through those dry periods. Plus the fact that you have this residue on top that's like a big giant blanket on your soil. Mm-hmm. And you'll keep from evaporating so much water when you have a severe heat and dry times. So that's pillar two. And then pillar three is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and carbon sequestration. But if you do number one and do number two, number three automatically happens. And that's how you get farmers to, to finally come around and listen to a different way of doing it. Provide them an economic incentive to change their way. Show them some savings and nutrients that would ordinarily run off and and into the streams and and rivers and get down in the Gulf of Mexico. Or you can show different way, maybe with some biodiversity, another crop that they can raise. And also uh, the number two is when you talk about soil resilience, that that's where you bring in cover crops to keep something growing all the time. And then those cover crops will not be a quick return on investment, but over five to 10 years. We always got to figure out ways that we can make our, our farms more resilient and hand it to the next generation. And then if you do number one and number two again, all of a sudden you realize that you have better water quality, you have better air quality, and you're sequestering carbon in the soil. That's an ecosystem service we were doing that we were helping the cause without even realizing it. Then I'll guarantee you, you'll have champions in the farming community out there as, as really understanding and being a solution to climate change because that just sequesters all of the carbon that is available in the air that, that sucks down and, and make it permanently available in the soil for the next crop.
0: So, Fred, I want to focus for a moment on the next generation. You have two kids that are working side by side with you. I do. What are they going to have to focus on in the future? Certainly, as as we look at being climate smart, that's one area. But what else are they going to have to be focused on?
1: One of the things that we're always going to constantly have to get better at is utilizing technology and knowing what we're doing. And getting certain outcomes that by doing specific practices and and really understanding if what we're doing is actually paying its way and actually having a good effect on things like for instance my my son is a thirty four years old he's a millennial and he's uh he thinks much different than me he's I'm a trial and error guy that's how we find out what something works. He's all about looking at the data. the more data you have to look at and, and aggregate the the more answers you're gonna to get from what he's doing and so he's looking at seeing in a much more objective way than maybe. Uh, some older ones would do, and he's also willing to try new things. So I'm really, really hopeful that the next generation will look at things a little diff- different than us baby boomers. The, the newer ones are going to look at it and, okay, what's, what, how can we make money and how can we leave it in better shape and how do we manage that risk that's out there with these changing weather patterns? And so he's going to look at maybe some, some more biodiversity, maybe explore some new crops that we haven't uh, been raised in the, in the past. I mean, we mainly concentrate on corn and soybeans today. But maybe there's some other crops that we need to be looking at. But the value of the cover crop that we put in between uh, raising the corn and soybeans, that's a, we've learned really fast how great that is for your soil because you know, we use cellular rye a lot for our cover crops and it basically just takes up all those excess nutrients that we hadn't used on the previous crop and stores it in the, in the plant itself. And then as it breaks down, it, it provides food for the next crop. We have to get more efficient, you know, cut our our fertilizer down, and maybe utilize a little more uh, microbes and things like that in the soil. Pay attention to more what's happening underneath the soil surface than, than just what's happening on top. So it's a different perspective. The other thing you have to look at is technology and, and precision. We actually farm by the square foot today. I mean, we have the our ability on our planter is as is, is it, it changes the rates of the fertilizer, it changes the rates for the seed, and we can do all that stuff on the go. And every time we make a trip to the field, we have a map on it. So you lay those maps on each other, and so you, you have to figure out, did this practice work better than the last practice? Do I need to do something over here? And so it's a much more scientific approach, but it's also a much more efficient approach. As our margins get smaller and smaller because of uh, unsure markets, the only way you're going to survive is, is you have to keep cutting costs. And, and, of course, the reason I got into all this is how now the world we're going to feed a nine and a half to 10 billion a world. And the only way we're going to do that on the same amount of land is just a better job.
0: So Fred, you're fourth generation. Uh, your son is fifth generation. I want to talk a little bit about that dynamic. I actually worked for my dad. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. I worked for my dad for a while, and I actually joined an organization. I don't know if it still exists, but your son might be interested in it. It's called the SOBs, Sons of Bosses. And what we found is when you're talking about technology, you're talking about the different language between the two generations. What are some helpful hints that you can offer other farmers, both, you know, fifth generation and fourth generation farmers on how they can best communicate? Because I remember getting into battles with my dad, you know, where I would just say, well, why just send me to college if you're not going to listen to me? You know, and, and and those kind of situations. So what can you what can you offer other farmers in a way to really listen to this next generation and learn from it? Doesn't mean everything that they're going to say is right or that everything you're going to say is right. But how can we better communicate to be able to lead agriculture into the future in a positive way?
1: Well, you touched on a real challenge, and that is the, the difference between the way you know, each generation thinks and approaches business proposition or a way to, to you know do something different. And one of the things that we really have to get over is the fact that, and I have to get over this as an older fella. you know, my son's got lots of different ideas. And my first inclination is, well, you know, been there, done that, tried it, it doesn't work. But on the other hand, I got to realize I got to give him the, the, the freedom to think and to uh, create and and figure things out on their own. So I can't emphasize enough about the whole communication thing. You know, when when my father and I used to uh, work together, I, you know, I went through that thing, especially during college times and getting out. Mm -hmm. I thought I knew it all. And then after, uh, after a while, I realized that I didn't know it all. And and, uh, the longer I stayed in farming, the more I actually asked dad for for his counsel and tried to consult with him before I did something. I got to learn that uh, there's a whole lot of knowledge and and experience out there and wisdom, that's something I need to call on. And now, we went through that whole thing on our farm with my son Josh, and, and right. we're, we're finally getting to that. My son's a lot more educated than I am, but he's, he asked tremendously good questions. And as we go through this, he actually asked my counsel more now, but it's all about communication. And we went through, uh, when, we, when he first came back, especially after he got his MBA and worked in the corporate world, uh, he, he thought he knew it all, but he didn't know it all, and neither did I. And But yet, I've really learned to enjoy our dialogue, and we take a specific issue, and, and we talk about it. If it's a new idea, we'll try it on a very small acreage. If it's a really good idea, we'll try it on a much bigger thing. But every farmer that's farming today should do something every year that's making him nervous or uncomfortable, mm-hmm. because you never know how something that maybe doesn't work best the first year, that you'll find ways to tweak and make it work better the second year. That's how we got into cover crops, and uh, my son really pushed it, and, and he was right. And so, again, it comes back to that communication.
0: Well, Fred, thanks so much for joining us. You've got great insights and really helping lead us in the future, whether it's next generation or whether it's technology or science. So thank you for joining us today on Farm Food Facts.
1: Well, thanks for having me very much.
0: And now for the news you need to know. What are the lessons learned from leafy greens? Last year's E. coli outbreaks in romaine lettuce show us the challenges for food safety programs. The outbreaks of E. coli contamination that sickened hundreds of people were linked to romaine lettuce, and the recalls cost producers millions. FDA investigators found a strain of E. coli linked to illnesses in Yuma, Arizona, in an irrigation canal that supplies several farms. Another outbreak was linked to California farms. The same E. coli strain was discovered in the sediment of a pond on a farm, but it had a different genetic fingerprint. Although the sources of the outbreak were found, many questions remain. For instance, how did the pathogen get into the water sources in the first place? This is important so we can ascertain how to prevent their problems growers can do everything right and still be at risk of a food safety crisis until the science of prevention is improved with new tools for detecting cases of food poisoning and fingerprinting pathogens water testing remains a challenge because irrigation water is tested for total coliform bacteria not pathogens. It's quite complicated and expensive to seek all the various potential pathogens under routine circumstances, and regulators typically rely on a spike to indicate risk. However, the romaine outbreaks illustrate just how the existing methods simply don't catch everything. In order for the FDA to find the pathogen strain in an Arizona canal, it took much larger samples and used a high-tech means of testing that is not financially feasible for growers. And it's extremely difficult to trace accurately, especially in that final mile that goes to the consumer. A good traceback can significantly narrow the scope of concern, but more research is still needed into how contamination occurs. And another aspect of farming that could benefit from more research is drones and making drones work for small farmers. Humans and even satellites have a tough time beating a drone's eye for detail in scanning farming systems from above. Unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, have gained ground quickly in agriculture over the last decade as part of precision agriculture, as they have the ability to fly under the clouds, collecting and sending images in almost real time. They can also help farmers check the health of crops, track livestock, plan fertilization, assess damages, and map fields at high resolution. An increasing number of drones for agriculture are sold on every continent, but several experts are questioning whether drones can really fulfill the needs of all the farmers across the world. The US, the UK, and Australia have all increasingly embraced ag tech, But developing countries where farm sizes average about one hectare have been much slower adopters of this technology, although the cost of running a basic agriculture drone has dropped by five times over the last five years. But drones can help small farms tackle soil loss by spotting degraded land needing restoration. Drone-collected images can tell farmers where to fertilize, whether to spray pesticides, or where their equipment has failed. And drones can offer small farmers an advantage by facilitating early decision-making, which allows them to spot issues sooner. Drones can also identify locations where one can make sustainable choices for the smallholder. But small plots can still limit drones' capabilities. And monoculture systems are easier to assess, with crops such as corn being highly suited for management Via drones. So there's still work and research necessary in making drones work well for small farmers. In other tech-related news, data standardization is critical for driving efficiency into food supply chains. Food supply chains struggle with a lack of visibility and transparency, which extends from the farm to the fork. The main reason behind these issues is the way food is being sourced. These days, food sourcing is truly global, with produce being shipped from different areas of the world, stocked in supermarkets, and moving through the hands of several stakeholders along the way. This brings complexity into managing logistics, because stakeholders at different nodes of the value chain often have no visibility into the operations of the other parties who are involved. In turn, this motivates businesses to look into blockchain, which can help standardize supply chain processes while also providing much-needed transparency and visibility. Kevin Otto is a senior director at GS1US, which is the organization that standardizes blockchain frameworks for easy adoption within food supply chains. He said the following, As supply chains grow increasingly more global, you don't necessarily have that personal relationship with some of the trading partners in a supply chain that you may have had 10 or 15 years ago. So the idea that you can actually track and trace products through a global supply chain and ensure that you're shipping safe food to consumers becomes increasingly more of an acute problem. Otto also explains that the idea of linking supply chain trading partners together in a trustworthy environment through blockchain is essential, because there has been an increase in the number of recalls and contamination issues in recent years, which threatens authenticity within food supply chains. He's contended that the real value behind blockchain is its possibilities in enabling more open data sharing and in creating an audit trail. Essentially, although blockchain can bring in accountability, this technology still requires its core data to be populated and accurate at the start. Up next, 17-year-old Addy Battelle, sixth-generation farmer and co-founder of Meeting the Need for Our Village. Addy, welcome to Farm Food Facts.
2: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: So one thing I I know from having met you at Honor of the Harvest and hearing you talk is you really look at youth empowerment as the key to affecting the world's biggest challenges. Tell me about that.
2: Absolutely. That's a thing that I've kind of a common thread that I've tried to keep in everything I do as much as I can is that I hope to always be following my passions and doing everything that I can to solve the problems that I see. And I hope that by doing that, I inspire other youth to do the same thing. And, and I hope I can continue on a path that allows me to really, in a very hands-on way, empower other youth to do the same.
0: So Addy, you're 17. You're a high school senior. Next year, you're going to start Michigan State University for a degree in animal science. You're a sixth-generation farmer with everything in front of you. Your whole life in front of you with all all things happening in technology and so on, why choose to be a sixth generation farmer? It's a hard life
2: it is i I really see a future in agriculture. I think agriculture has always been the um sort of driving force of society we need to eat agriculture allowed for a surplus of food and allowed humanity to really expand and so I absolutely see. Um, me supporting agriculture through my career as supporting society.
0: So let's talk about the climate. Uh, I hesitate to use the word climate change, but let's talk about the challenges that the weather, that the climate is, is really creating for farmers these days. And what do you hope that you can do about that?
2: Climate volatility stemming from climate change is causing lots of problems in Michigan. We still have corn in the ground right now with feet of snow on top of it. And that, that's coupled with a wet spring and just, we're not, we're not doing well. And I see my role, you know, we're, we're beginning to discover agriculture's potential for carbon sequestration through healthy soil. And I see my role as sharing that message, sharing with the farmers around me that. By doing the things for your soil that we've known for generations are the right things to do, and by innovating and adopting new technologies that improve our healthy soils, we can begin to solve some of our greatest problems.
0: You created a foundation, an organization called Meeting the Need for Our Village. Tell us about that.
2: Sure. Meeting the Need for Our Village began back in 2014 when my hometown of Cass City became a food desert. So according to the USDA, that means for a rural area that we don't have a grocery store for 10 miles. And for us, it's closer to 20 miles. Actually, we don't have a grocery store. And um, I was 12 years old at the time. So I didn't really get the full scope of, of all of the issues that that lack of access to food had on my community. But I did know that I'm fortunate enough that my dinner table is always full of lots of meat lots of foods right from the farm and I saw that as an opportunity to get those things to my community so that's what four of my friends and I started to do we recognized that we were farm kids we had barns we had the ability to raise animals and get them processed of course by properly licensed processors and then donate them to food pantries in the area and so that's what we've been doing for the last five years, and we've made about a $63,000 impact in the community and are working on gaining 501c3 nonprofit status right now.
0: Terrific. Well, Addie, I think our future, future of farming and the future of the world is in good hands with you. You've accomplished so much in just 17 years. I can't wait to see what you do in the next 17 years. And thanks for joining us today on Farm Food Facts.
2: All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. For more information on all things food and agriculture, please visit us at usfarmersandranchers.org. Also, be sure to look for us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.